0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. One of the hardest things to do is to separate your work from and what your effort that you put in from the results that might come out of it. So it's like, think about it. It's like an actor... An actor doesn't control the movie around them. They don't control what the other actors do. They don't control the marketing budget. They don't control the distribution. So, you know, they could, they could do the role of a lifetime, but then the director could or the editor could mess it up in, in pr- post-production, right? And so if your, if your happiness with your job and your career is dependent on how the movie does at the box office – or how the critics respond to your role, you have now placed your happiness with your own life in the hands of other people. And that's a recipe for profound disappointment.
3: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your
1: business is always at your fingertips.
0: Ryan, welcome to the
2: unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: It's amazing to be here. Um, you were one of the first podcasts I ever did. And and so it's uh I feel like it's coming full circle talking again.
2: Well, it's, you know, it's really cool to have you back here. I mean, you know, for people who are listening, this is the third time we've actually had you on the show and you're one of the few people that has made it back for a third appearance, which really I think says a lot about the body of work that you've created. I mean, you introduced me to my literary agent. So I I have a lot uh, of gratitude for the work that you do. But I want to start today's conversation a little bit differently than we have in the past because I think a lot of people know about your story. They know a lot about your work. And uh, this actually came from, from Brian. He said, ask Ryan about this. So I want to ask you what social group you are a part of in high school and how that has ended up impacting your
1: life and the work that
2: you've ended up doing.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think some people have a, you know, a very clear idea, like this is my group. I was a jock or mm-hmm. you know, I was like a loser. I think I was sort of uh in between although i mean i mean maybe someone could make a case that i was a loser and i just wasn't (laughs) aware of it um so i ran i ran cross country uh and track for four years of high school and it was just it track and cross country are a strange thing because it's an athletic endeavor but it's a totally a solitary one Uh and then it tends to attract the people that couldn't cut it in any of the other sports so like i was i was okay um, but when I look back, for instance, when I look back on my like athletic career as a high schooler, I see like a ton of wasted potential. Okay. I remember I would get in trouble all the time. I never took it seriously. I was, I feel like I was stuck in this space where I was afraid that if I tried really hard, I think subconsciously, I don't think this is conscious. I, I think I, I was in a world where I was pretty good naturally And so that was enough. Like I was confident in that that natural ability, but I didn't try very hard because then if I tried really hard, it would be on me. The success or failure would be on me. And so I, I sort of took this lackadaisical, ironic, you know, very immature attitude about all of it. And I think most of my friends did too. So it was this, it, I, I now I love running and I, I run every single day and I, it, you know, it's something I take a lot of pride in the sort of the the routine and the dedication of it. But I didn't, I, that was, when I look back at my high school career, that sort of thread runs through all of it. Like in classes where the teacher liked me, I worked really hard. In ones where I felt like the teacher wasn't treating me fairly or didn't like me, I didn't try hard at all. And so I sort of see that pattern of I was in the I was in the group of the people who didn't value their time or their effort or their identity very highly. I think I preferred to be ironic about it all, um, probably because I was afraid.
2: Mm. What's the most important thing that you learned from a, a coach uh, when running track that you've uh, incorporated into your life today?
1: Um, yeah, it's funny I my coaches and I, we really didn't get along. I think I got kicked off the team at some (laughs) point in every single one of the four years for some fraction. Um, But I remember I I had this one coach, her name was Miss Simpson and she gave, she was giving us this advice one time. So in cross country, obviously the track is, is hilly. And, and what you'll notice is that, um, that people run really hard on the downhill part because all of a sudden you feel like you're going really fast. And what she I remember what she would yell at us all the time It was this idea of like actually you should pass people on the uphill um and if you're in good if you've if you've done your conditioning, you can pass people on the uphill and then on the downhill if you if you understand form correctly, the downhill should not be where you speed up the downhill should be where you're you're making gravity work for you and so that's something I, I sort of use that as a metaphor i guess an analogy sometimes it's this idea of like Okay, it's on the uphill when other people are struggling that your where other people are struggling that your conditioning really kicks in, and it's on the downhill where you get the illusion of progress where people think like oh I'm passing all these people because I'm going really fast, but if you're doing it right that should actually be where you're conserving a lot of your energy. So even as a runner I think about that now. I really like hills. I sort of look forward to them. But then in life I think it's in the difficult scenarios when when you're overloaded with stress or with things are going difficult that's where I feel like I'm making my progress or I'm going to make my move and then it's when things are going awesome that you that's when the discipline and the can, and and your understanding of the the form really makes the biggest difference and you've got to be you've got to be willing to put your ego aside a little bit and be okay with with the difference between perception and reality there
2: Yeah, we'll we'll actually talk about that in depth. It's funny, because it makes me think of something I wrote recently, uh, also based on a conversation I had with Brian, you know, we were talking about sort of the momentum that we're gathering as we're going into uh, a launch of a book. And I said, So what do you you know, what comes after this? And he said, all I can tell you is don't stop doing what got you there in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, I think with with running, what you're thinking about is one of the things I'm always thinking about with running is like, You have to keep your own pace and your own sort of game plan. And if you're not, then you can get really distracted by what other people are doing or what you're suddenly supposed to do in a given situation. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's like, hey, if I'm waiting to the last mile to to start my kick, just because somebody else starts it at a mile and a half doesn't mean that I match them uh, step for step or I'm not going to have any gas left when I need it. And so... That's something I'm thinking about, too, is like, no, I'm running a race with myself. Mm -hmm. I know what sort of pace I can hold. I know what I need to do. And you've got to sort of cultivate kind of an indifference to what's going on around you, or you can end up uh, burning yourself out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I love that
2: because it sounds like it's about a lot more than running. I mean, we live in a world where we can constantly look at what everybody else is doing.
1: Yeah, of course. Of course. Not only – can you, you know, you're supposed to log into Facebook every day and it's, it's a parade of everyone else's accomplishments or, you know, you, you pull up Instagram and it's a parade of what they want you to think their lives look like, you know, through these manipulative filters and such. And so you've got to know like, Hey, this is what's important to me. This is what I value. This is, these are the benchmarks that I'm measuring myself against. Um, and it's really a recipe for for not just madness to follow all these other people, but, you know, deep unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Without a doubt. we'll, we'll, I, we'll start talking about a lot of this and quite a bit more depth um, when we actually start talking about the book. I want to ask you one other question about, yeah. uh, you know, the cross country period. I'm curious what uh, you learned about habits and discipline that you brought from that that you bring into the work that you do today.
1: So I mean I would say I learned all the lessons of what you're not supposed to do, right? Because <laughs> um, I wasn't doing it. Um, to, I remember. So I remember in in track I ran a 502 mile when I was I don't know a sophomore or a junior in high school, which is pretty good. Um, and. I remember passing the, like, I remember this very vividly sort of passing the finish line. I see 502. I've been shooting for five minutes. Like, I wanted to break five. That was like my goal. And I remember thinking, like, oh, 502, like, that's, that's good enough. You know, that, that was my teenage response to uh, failure, not like a catastrophic failure, but a disappointment, right? It's like, oh, it's good enough. And I had no idea that that's like not a good enough attitude that, Two seconds doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal. And that you make progress in your life holding yourself to those standards. And so it wasn't until I was maybe like twenty-two or twenty-three, um, so years later, that uh I was like, no, that matters to me. Like I I did all that work to get to five almost to five, and then I stopped. And so I, you know, I set a goal. I, I ended up doing like four fifty-five, but it took You know, it took like a year or so of training to be able to get there. And so it's like, you know, getting close and then calling it close enough is like is not is not I I wish a coach had been like, great job, but not good enough. You know, instead of patting me on the back and congratulating me, I wish he'd held me to a higher standard and I wish I could have held myself to a higher standard. Um, But I didn't have that then. It, It wasn't until college you know one day i just started running and i've run almost every single day since then and the idea that you know it's holding yourself to a routine or to a standard that matters and that it's the doing the thing every single day that's the real marathon right it's not hey i ran a race and i did okay and mm-hmm. this is a fun hobby it's like no this is this is a an activity that i'm dedicated to and i I get better by committing to the the craft and you know sort of doing it every single
2: day. Yeah, I mean that's been me and my thousand words a day. I haven't stopped doing it for probably four years at this point, maybe more.
1: Yeah, no, and and you and so you, you know someone might someone might write ten thousand words in two days, and that's really impressive. But you know it's it's the fact that you're at Jerry Seinfeld has that thing. It's like yeah. your job is not to break. Is not to break the momentum, you know, or or not to break the the line of X's on the calendar. And how long how long can you go? And the the more that you can, the better you get. And and I think people don't people because they just see the results. Like they just see the one article, and they mm-hmm. they're like, I like that article, but I didn't like this article, and they don't understand that it's the aggregate output that you're that you care about. Obviously, you care about each individual article, but right. It's it's really the fact that after however many days you're gonna have written a million words Mm -hmm. and what is the aggregate quality of those million words. That's I think that's what I care about and that's what I'm working on. You have to you have to be able to develop that. And I think it's really hard when you're sixteen years old to realize that ten years from now you're gonna care about this streak and that if you'd started it now it'd be even more you'd be even prouder of it. Why do you think
2: that people have such a hard time with committing to a standard and and they settle so often for good enough
1: um I think one i think it's i think fear is a large part of it, right? like if you don't care, then you don't have to feel bad about yourself right you don't like it's hard to write an article and it not be good enough right that's un that's an unpleasant feeling It's hard to publish an article and have someone. Say that they don't like it. Those those things are tough. So I think that's a big part of it. And then I think I think the other I think a huge part of it is ignorance, right? So you don't um, like, for instance, like uh, dieting, right? Like eating well. Um, when you're not eating well, you think that you you like how you're eating, right? Like you're like I got pizza when I want it, and I got candy when I want it, and I drink soda, and I enjoy the pleasure of those those indulgences and um dieting is an unpleasant period where you're depriving yourself of things and you're not enjoying what you're eating and so on the other but on the other side of that is what health feels like which is you know not only the absence of all the crappiness that you feel but it's it's you know good right Mm -hmm. and so i think people People don't understand that what's on the other side is actually better. And so they're not willing to endure the short-term crappiness to get to the other side. And that's the paradox, right? It's like you have to have faith that, hey, so-and-so is telling me if I cut these things out of my life, my life will be better. But it's going to be unpleasant to do so. You have to have the faith that and listen and and be able to take a risk. Hmm.
2: Well, I, I think that makes a perfect transition to talk uh, about something that I know both of us are, are deeply passionate about, which is this whole idea of deep work, uh, yeah. which you, know, you and I have both written plenty about uh, in our, our recent articles. And so I, I want to talk about your entire creative process, productivity systems that you have in place. I know you're a voracious reader. Uh, and you know people have always wondered how you do all of these things. So I, I wanted to spend a little time this time talking about Systems that you've put in place, habits that you've put in place that facilitate this creative process, and also talk about the research process that goes into your books because it's one of the things I've always enjoyed about reading your work is that even though I like I can't get myself to read a history book, I get history lessons from reading your books, oh, um, and, and that's that's one thing I've really appreciated. So I'd love to talk about all of this in a bit more detail and, and find out you know how this all comes together.
1: Yeah, so uh, I mean, I do think deep work is very important. I think. Like uh, people don't understand that a book is not, hey, I have an idea for a book and then I wrote it, right? It's hundreds of hours of research. It's finding little nuggets all over the place and going, hey, I like that line. I'm going to write that down. And then thinking on it and putting it away and storing it. You know, I think uh, I've been meaning to put something together. I was thinking about my last book. I know, I, I know exactly what book I was reading and I, I mean, it's easy to find what page it was in that book that I found the sort of the crux of what became the obstacle is the way. It was a book by Pierre Hédeau, who's talking about this exercise called turning obstacles upside down, um, which is in um, you know the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. I remember finding that and writing it down on a note card. It wouldn't have been for four years that. I started writing that book, maybe more, right? And I'd been introduced to meditations even before that. So, um, people don't understand that writing a book is is that process. It's it's the the nugget of the idea, and then the accumulation of time and thinking, and all of that is in the in the quiet, deep work where you're sitting alone, thinking and working or researching. And so, my you know, a book might take ten hours to read, mm-hmm. you know it you know, in actual reading time, but it might be the accumulation of thousands of hours of work. Yeah. And my I I try to carve out as much of I you have to carve out that time from somewhere. It doesn't it doesn't happen in a sprint two weeks before the book is due. Right. (laughs) Right. It's It's every day putting in Three or four hours for a year in a row that gets you maybe your crappy first draft. Yeah. (laughs) I I would agree with that,
2: having just gone through the process.
1: Yeah. And then, and you know, then the next part of the process is the editing and the rewriting and all that, which is, you know, 100. It's, hey, this is the fourth time I've worked on this paragraph, tweaking (laughs) these, you know, these words about, because so-and-so said it was too much like this yeah. and then somebody else said it was too much like that, you know. And, and so people don't – I think, you know, we live in this world now where people think like a book is something you hire someone to make for you or, you know, maybe there's a software that can do it for you or whatever. They don't really understand that the difference between a book that lasts and a book that might get, you know, might, you know, sell a thousand copies on Amazon or whatever is – those hundreds and hundreds of hours.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I've been curious about, uh, I've, I've been like borrowing a lot of ideas from your process lately. Like I, I tend to read primarily physical, physical books. I underline lots of passages and I find that I frequently return to books that I've already read Mm -hmm. Um, and I found that that, that actually has been really informative in coming up with ideas. Uh, cause sometimes I'll just break open a book and look at what it is that I've underlined in the morning. And that'll be my inspiration for writing. Like I'll just grab one of the quotes that I underlined and that's how I'll start my thousand words. I'm curious when you read a book, um, what is the process of absorbing the information in the book look like for you? Like, what is, you know, do you underline stuff? I know you mentioned the note card system. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because I feel like we're in this really interesting sort of phase where we can consume content really fast. Like you can listen to an audiobook on two X, you can fly through a book, you know, uh, in an hour, if you really don't read it closely. And so I'm really curious, you know, what your process for reading looks like so that you actually end up absorbing all this material
1: yeah I mean, so I have on my desk uh right now a copy of Pat Conroy's The Great Santini, which I'd never read, which is a novel and i, I read it maybe two weeks ago mm-hmm. so this is a this is a fictional sort of coming of age tale right and i pro- I'm trying to look here I've got i don't know maybe twenty five different pages that I folded, and then I read it I had a pencil, I guess I couldn't find a pen, I had a pencil while I was reading it and i I mark certain passages that I like. Or sometimes I didn't have the pencil, so I'm just marking the page. And then this is on my desk because today I'm gonna I'm gonna hopefully have 30 minutes to go through the book. I'm gonna write down all those passages that I liked, or you know, words that I needed to look up, or you know, uh, in this one I don't think he recommends any other books, but I'm, I, there might have been an afterward um, from the author where he's talking about other stuff. So I'm I'm writing this down and I'm transferring them to four by six note cards. So next to it I've got. Uh, I think 300, it's three 100 packs of uh, uh, four by six index cards. And so I transfer, I I read the book, I'm marking things that I think are of value to me either as a writer or as a human being. And then I am tran- uh, I give it about two weeks to sort of sit. And then I'm transferring this knowledge to note cards. And this is a process I learned from from Robert Green, um, who I was a research assistant for all of his books. So like the 48 Laws of Power is compromised of you know like probably 5000 note cards or you know mm-hmm. it's such a meticulously researched book it's it's insane but then i take those note cards and i organize them by theme so like the i was telling you that story about the obstacles away i read that thing about turning obstacles upside down i made a note card out of it i put it in the my box where i store them and 4 or 5 years later that became a book called the obstacles away which is you know knocking on the door of selling having sold 200,000 copies so you never know what this random passage or, um, you know, little nugget of information can turn into. And the reality is the vast majority of it turns into nothing. Mm. I, could go, I go through my note cards right now and I'm like, what is this? Like, I don't like this. I don't agree with this. <laughs> or what am, I can't even read my writing here. But, you know, the one in a hundred times that it becomes something is enough to build a career around. Yeah. yeah.
2: Do, you, do you actually review your note cards on a regular basis?
1: So obviously when I'm writing a book, I definitely – like I'm, I'm having to go th- – like I had a huge uh, you know, section on stoicism in my general sort of box. And so right. when I'm writing a book about stoicism, I'm going through there and taking everything that fits with the thesis of that book. When I'm writing, when I'm writing articles, I'm – like let's say like this week I, I want to write an article about writing. I know that I do and it's on my to-do list. Um, I'm, I have a section of note cards about writing. And I'll take out those two or three hundred note cards and I'll find a quote or an example or, you know, something, some some thought that I've jotted down. And the I want I the vast majority of the piece isn't written, but the the crux of the argument I've probably already discovered. And that's how I'm comfortable, you know, being able to say, like, hey, write an article about this this week mm-hmm. because I've already kind of pre-researched it.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, that was
2: super helpful and, and insightful. So let, let's actually get into what we really want to spend the bulk of our time talking about today, which is this new book, uh, Ego is the Enemy. So what I want you to talk about first is
1: uh, what the impetus
2: was and how you sort of arrived at this conclusion.
1: So um, I wrote Obstacle in 2013. It came out in 2014, but um, I'm sort of in this space where you are, where the book was done and it wasn't out yet. And I, I always want to be thinking about the next project. And so I really I I get a lot of emails from young people and most of the emails are like insane, basically, like <laughs> they're like, you know, I need you to do this for me or like um, why can't I why don't I have this? You know, they're just very entitled. And so I I just knew I wanted to write something about that and um, originally, the book was going to be about humility. That's what I wrote the proposal about. It was sort of about humility and groundedness and, and um, you know, sort of um, – I, I just get – I get this sense that with social media, it's really easy to sort of, um, you know, get high on your own supply, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to write about that. And that's what I sold the proposal about. And, you know, then you sell the proposal and then you're just sort of researching and thinking – um, and when it started to come closer to like, okay, I have to write this, I just realized that like I'd read all these books about humility and there there wasn't what I wanted – it wasn't working. And, and I realized that it's like writing a book about humility is like everyone knows humility is good and it's really hard to know whether you're doing it or not. And so it, it just wasn't making for – the The material wasn't supporting the hypothesis that I had. The hypothesis I had about it, you know this being a good book idea, and so thinking more about it and talking to me, I realized it was like what I realized is that ego was really the problem. Everyone wants to be humble, but why can't they? It's ego is the problem. And as I fleshed this out, it's like ego is the enemy of all these things that we're trying to do, whether it's write a book or start a company or you know be successful inside a company or have a relationship. Ego is why. These overconfident, you know, seventeen-year-olds are sending me these crazy emails, right? And so, that—that that was the hard part of 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 the book. It's it, of of writing the book is really figuring out what the hell it's going to be. And once I had that, then it came together really quickly. I started to get the structure. I started to get the stories that I wanted. And I just realized that it's I, what I realized. I realized how it connects to obstacle. Is that you know, obstacle is about these external things that we face. Yeah. And ego is our biggest internal obstacle and it makes like all the things that I was talking about in terms of the stoic mindset ego makes impossible, right? You know, the reason someone tries something and then fails and then goes, "Oh, I can't do it. It's impossible." The reason they think that is because they've brought to it this idea that like oh if it doesn't come easy to me it must be impossible because obviously i'm a genius and like everything i try is golden right it takes some humility to go like hey i don't know how to do this but i'm gonna figure it out i'm gonna stay at it i'm gonna hammer away at this thing so i i it it was only in the i guess what i guess my one of my points is you know, you think you sit down and you think you're gonna do one thing, but you've got to be open to what the material is actually telling you. Mm-hmm. And then two, I just realized how much we we get in our own way. And I saw, you know, I, I saw American Apparel collapse over, you know, the time that I was kicking this book around, and so that obviously influenced what I was talking about and thinking about. And um I just came up with this idea of like you know, ego is what stands between us and not just what we want to accomplish, but it stands between us and being satisfied or content with our accomplishments as well. Hmm.
2: So you mentioned that you get a lot of emails from young people. And uh, I wanted to ask you about this because I know you specifically wrote about this. I mean, you in a lot of ways are an example for a lot of these young people, because you 've got to experience success at such a young age that the average person really doesn 't, and so i 'm curious how that early exposure um, to success uh, influenced your own relationship with ego and really influenced your perspective on writing this book
1: yeah, I mean so I was just very conscious the like when i you know i I started sort of meeting famous, important, successful people at like eighteen or nineteen years old, and I was working with them and like I wasn't an equal, but I was like in the room, right? And so I was really – maybe I'm shy. I don't know what was motivating it, but I was really, really nervous about sort of being identified as like the the young up-and-comer. I just wanted to be considered good, period, right? And so I was – I guess I. it's like I kept seeing other people who were similar to me. Do well at first and then fall off. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted to be different. I wanted to like I wanted to do this forever. And so that was one of the things I was always really scared about. And I was thinking about and I would ask questions about. It's like, why do people sort of burn fast and bright and then go out? Or, you know, why do people seem to implode their own careers? And and so that was that was something I was really conscious of. And then the other thing is I just realized like I realized how precarious it was like how it was like I'm working for these people because they see something in me and they want you know they they want me to be successful but I also could see like it's like hey if I was an asshole like one day or like if I suddenly thought I knew more than them on one day I could I could blow this whole thing up you know like I could it took you know one One petulant tantrum by me to undo everything I was doing, and so I, I was, I guess I just had to be really conscious of it, and I thought about it all the time. That so when I get these emails, I'm like, "What is this? Like, why are you behaving this?" I'm like, sort of like appalled by it because I would never let myself act that way. Um, You know, I get these emails and they're like, "I would like you to be my mentor. What I would like is." One phone call every single week for an hour where we review what I'm going on and in exchange, I'm willing to give you x, y, and z and I just i was like you know when I was working for Robert green sometimes we'd be we'd go like two months without talking like my wow. i didn't i wasn't dictating terms to this person, I was just happy for whatever he would sort of throw my way, and I was you know working on my own project sort of quietly in the corner so i i guess I think I am sensitive to it because i I still can remember what that was like and how, what a tight tightrope it was.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's get uh, uh, into a lot of the principles from the book because there were so many that really blew me away. Do you think you could give us sort of an overview of how ego plays the role that it does in our lives and, of course, more importantly, how to not let it destroy what we're capable of?
1: So, yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, I think the the premise of the book is basically that each person exists at... Uh, at any time at sort of one of three different phases you're either uh aspiring to do something you've succeeded at something or you're experiencing some sort of difficulty or failure and my premise is that ego is the absolute worst ingredient to add into that that one could find right so when you're trying to do something you know being delusional or being overconfident or um you know, being in ill-disciplined, you know, uh, those are, that, that's ego in the aspirational phase and it prevents you from learning, prevents you from building relationships. You know, it, it, um, it, it, um, puts you in a dangerous position. And then when you're successful, you know, ego manifests itself as control or delusion or entitlement. Um, it also manifests itself in, in, uh, you know our complacency we stop learning um we start uh we stop sort of holding ourselves to standards that were once important and then finally when we 're going through adversity, the problem with ego is uh it prevents us from learning from our mistakes, it blames other people it um you know it it tells us that this isn't worth it um it makes us hate you know it so in basically in every Phase of the creative process, every phase of the entrepreneurial process, every phase of life. Basically, ego is this toxic ingredient that can seep in if we're not uh, on guard against it. And so, I'm I'm I wanted to look at the I wanted to look at the ways that that happened, and then what we can do to prevent it. Right. So, yeah. somebody who who never sort of who never stops being a student is is inherently less likely to be egotistical because they've opened themselves up to learning and to education. They're they know that they're not ready yet. Even if they're doing this thing at a high level, they know there's always more they can be doing, always more than they that they could be learning. So like for instance that mentality is inherently an antidote against uh ego. It's why like in MMA th- you, you meet these fighters who you'd think would be these intimidating, you know, uh, arrogant figures. But in fact, they're totally humble because they've dedicated themselves to this craft that there's never a graduation from. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it's interesting when I hear you say that and and really dissect it. I feel like we're constantly going through all those three phases throughout our lives. Like, it's not just you, you, you know, move from one to the other and that you're just there. Like, you don't go from aspiring to success and stay there. It seems like you have to constantly remember the lessons of each phase um, because you keep going through them consistently.
1: Yeah, of course, right? So you're aspiring to do something and then you succeed at it. Yeah. You're what's next is either you fail. I did probably because, like, you know you made some mistake you know ego ego driven mistake or now you're aspiring to do something else right yeah. like nobody's like uh hey you know it's like hey i want to be a major league baseball player then you know you make the league well now it's like hey i want to be th- you know the best at this position there ever was or i want to win a championship or you know i want to get into broadcasting right there's all these number of things that you want to do next and Ego is, ego is what prevents us from, you know, ego is what drives us to say, hey, I'm good at this thing. I must be good at everything else I want to do. And it ignores the fact that, hey, the reason I got good at this is because I was open to learning and I was open to feedback. And I, I you know, I I was willing to submit, you know, sacrifice short-term pleasure for long-term games. You know, I that's where ego prevents us. It's when you see you know somebody uh their first company was really successful and then their second company they lose everything because they you know they lost sight of why they were successful in the first place yeah you know
2: one of the pieces that really stayed with me from the aspiration page was the Bo Jackson story story that you told. And I wanted to actually ask you about that and have you tell people about that because I thought that was such a profound insight. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, that'll be the
1: last time I share most of my goals with the exception of like one or two people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the, what I was talking about in the book is when Bo Jackson decided that he wanted to, um, he wanted to be number one in the, uh, <clears throat> number one in, in the in the NFL draft, and I think he wanted to win the Heisman Trophy. Those were his, like, two goals. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't tell anyone. He just worked on them. I think he told his girlfriend. Those were the only two people that he he mentioned. And, you know, we live in this world where uh, you could say, hey, I'm writing a book, and you post it on social media, and everyone's like, congratulations, you're an author. Yeah. You know, and uh, so it's like you've gotten all the credit for this thing, but you haven't done it yet. Um, and that's the, the reality is writing a book is really demoralizing. And so it's like, if you've already gotten the credit, you can quit. And so when we, we live in this, we live in a world that encourages us, encourages us to talk about what we're doing because that's what fuels these social networks, but that can have a demotivating effect. Like one of my favorite social media accounts is, um, I'm working on my novel and it's basically like tweets of people talking about, how they're working on their novel and it's obviously they're not working on their novel they wouldn't have sent out that message on twitter right? right so um it it's it's the seduction of talk makes it possible is is in many ways like a sort of um succumbing to the resistance uh that St- Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance the more you're talking about the thing the more public you are with your goal the easier it's going to be for you to write it off uh when when it gets hard in my experience and so i try to be really private with my goals i don't talk about a book until it's done for the you know not not out obviously right but until it's like mostly written you know if i was starting a company i wouldn't say hey i'm starting a company i'd wait until i'd raised money for it or you know i'd done a, a, a minimum viable product like I, it's this idea that like hey um don't go around getting congratulations in advance for something or hyping yourself up. You're better off putting all of that energy into making the thing that you have to make because that's what ultimately separates you from everyone else. Yeah.
2: So what did you learn uh, about ego and uh, your own sort of uh, like working life based on the downfalls of the people you've seen? Because I know at the end of the book, you talk about Dov Charney, who I know played an incredibly influential role in you getting to where you're at today.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you watch, you know, one of your mentors, um, Dov, he was the founder of American Apparel. You know, I went to work for him seven or eight years ago and, you know, he had a billion dollar company and earlier this year it was... Declared bankruptcy and taken private. And all of that was wiped out. You know, my shares were wiped out. His shares were wiped out. His reputation, um, took a massive hit. Um, you know, and he's starting from scratch. And why is that? Why, why could someone be such a creative genius? Um, but, but, not be able to manage it right that that was very very scary to me and there i mean that that's that's just one of the more public examples obviously i've seen it with other people that i try not to talk about but you what you see is um when you're around really successful people especially creative people you see just how you see they tell you what they want and what they're you know, in, in like the general public, you just see like, hey, Kanye has a new album out and it's mm-hmm. good or bad, right? Yeah. You didn't you weren't sitting with him, not that I was, but you weren't sitting with him in the studio where he was telling you what he was trying to accomplish and what his goals are, and you didn't see how his enormous ego and his delusions and his vanity were preventing him from realizing that vision. And so you know when when you see these successful people who, um, who work so hard and have you know make so little progress on the thing they're they're working on, and you it's so clear to anyone who's not them what the problem is the that the problem is their ego and their their inability to hear and listen to the feedback around them. Um, it's 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 crushing, and and you you think uh, I mean I think. How easily that could be me, right? I, I wonder, you know, am I doing that about things? Are there things that other people can see very clearly in my life, you know, that where I'm, where I'm getting in my own way, where I'm the impediment to my own advancement? And so the, the book was largely driven by seeing, you know, when you see someone uh, evaporate $500 million of their own wealth, mm-hmm. you sort of go, how does something like this happen? How can how can I make sure that, you know, whatever scale I exist on, I don't do anything like that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I, I think it's one of the lessons that I've I very much learned in this process of writing a book. Like I constantly remind myself, don't get too high on your own bullshit. Like this is a privilege. Sure.
1: I mean, you it's it's sobering to think like, how many book deals does uh, we, we're both at the same imprint, right? Yeah. How many book deals does Penguin Random House or does penguin portfolio give out every year, and how many of those books uh even get made right how many of those books uh deliver on the potential that the editor thought they had um you know how how often does the writer manage to create a career out of doing this it's it's you know an alarmingly small percentage yeah. and I'm sort of fascinated with why that is. Why does someone who has all the same assets and all the same opportunities that you or I have, what prevents them from realizing that? And and so often it's their inability to sort of understand objectively the situation that they're in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, hey, you know, you say you're working on this book, but you're not making any progress day to day. Or, hey, um, you've written this book. You're so – you're so obsessed with what you think that you spent a year of your life making this book and you never bothered to think what the readers want, right? Yeah. Or, you know, you made this thing and then you, you thought you were too good to have to go out and hit the road and sell it to people. These are all reasons that prevent people from being successful. And I think, you know, obviously there's a myriad of causes for them. But yeah. they're, I think in large part they're rooted in ego and hubris. Mm. Let's talk about the adversity piece a little bit and the role
2: that ego plays uh, in moments of adversity and how we can avoid it
1: yeah I mean I think I think the the biggest the the chapter that I was most proud of in this section is this and and I saw you mention it in an article and I was very flattered by that it's you know you sit down and you work on something any any project you're starting a company you know you design a car you know you have a garage sale right like you you work on this thing and then at a certain point it goes out into the world and other it relies on other people right um and one of the hardest things to do is to separate your work from and what your effort that you put in from the results that might come out of it so it's like think about it's like an actor an actor doesn't control the movie around them. They don't control what the other actors do. They don't control the marketing budget. They don't control the distribution. So, you know, they could, they could do the role of a lifetime, but then the director could or the editor could mess it up in, in pr- post-production, right? And so if your, if your happiness with your job and your career is dependent on how the movie does at the box office – Or how the critics respond to your role. You have now placed your happiness with your own life in the hands of other people. And that's a recipe for profound disappointment, right? Like my last book was much more successful than I expected. Mm -hmm. But it could have been much less successful. And and would that have changed what I made? No. No. It feels like it does, but it doesn't. So I have to I have to think of that book. Ideally, the egoless way to think of that book is to have the same opinion of it now, however many thousands of copies later, that I had with it the day it went to print with the publisher because that was the day that my role in it creatively ended, right? And that's such a hard thing to do and even now on the verge of this other book coming out i have to remind myself that what i can take pride in and this is this is you know rooted in stoicism but that what i can take pride in and what matters is the part of it that i controlled, which is the effort that i put into making it how many copies it's sold or what blogs pick it up or whatever that's outside of my control. I can do a good interview with you right now, yeah. But you can decide. You decide whether it goes up on iTunes or not, right? And so, if I make my happiness or my opinion dependent on that thing, then I'm putting you or the outside world in control of my life. Wow, um, this has been epic, man. I, I have to say, like, this is probably
2: my favorite conversation of the three that we've had.
1: Uh, I th- I think you like it because you're you're wrestling with the same thing. That oh I'm yeah, yeah. With you know it, now, right? It's,
2: it's-, it's exactly it, it very much is like it's given me
1: a lot to chew on, and it's it's hard because like what obviously as a business person or as a person who. Ha- hopes to make money from what you're selling yeah. you do care about how it does and i'm not saying that you know i'm some zen monk uh <laughs> you know like i've written it off and and i'm giving all the money to charity or whatever like i'm still going to work hard to promote it but i ha- i just have to i have to remember that i mean w- one of the things i was writing in the book that i was thinking about is like think about like um you know martin luther king was today everyone thinks martin luther king is a hero right Um, but 50% of the country thought he was a communist agitator, you know, in the, in the sixties, right? Like clearly a huge portion of society disagreed with Martin Luther King in his own time. So was he, should he have like, should he have taken their opinions into account or did he have to realize that like, Hey, I control what I believe in. I control the people that I work with. I control the cause that I dedicate myself to, but I don't control how the the outside world interprets what I'm doing and that ultimately history is going to be the judge of this thing. And, you know, I think that's the same for a book. It's like, think about like some of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- a book like Moby Dick, you know, uh, Herman Melville died in poverty because the book was not a success. Yeah. And so you've got to realize that, hey, um, public opinion is not – Uh, especially in the short term, is not a great judge of something's quality or not. And so as a creative, you have to be able to render that judgment on your own work. And ideally, it should be based on the effort. You know, It's like, it's not, hey, is this good or not? It's, hey, is this the best that I was capable of doing? Um, And if you can get to that place, and I'm not even at that place, if you can get to that place, the creative life will be a very satisfying one for you. Um, if you, the creative life is based on whether you make a lot of money or other people say that you're good at it, then it really is going to depend on the, the rather fickle winds of public opinion whether you're satisfied with what you're doing or not.
2: Hmm. Well, that makes a, uh, just a fitting end to a conversation. So I want to ask you one last question, which I know you've probably heard me ask before. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: um that's i mean look that's a great question and i think uh the one thing that an artist is trying to do in their job in their course of their career is become who they are right um austin Cleani talks about sort of how you steal like an artist at the beginning of your career you're just taking all these influences and trying to sort of make something. But as you do this over a longer period of time, you're really trying to become you because you're the only person that can do that. So I think what's unmistakable is when someone is sort of authentically themselves in what they put out there. So they've stopped. Um, they like, I, I hear from lots of authors or companies or whatever, and they're like, Oh, I want to do this because this thing is popular. Or, I want to do this because like, you know, it's a good like Google search term or whatever. That's great. But what I always say is like, look, literally anyone could do that. Mm -hmm. What is the thing that only you can do? And if you're doing that, then obviously you're unmistakable because it can't, if only you can do it, it cannot possibly be confused for anyone or anything else. And so that's kind of what I try to think about with my own career and what I try to advise other people is like, the closer you can get to expressing the thing that only you can express, uh, the, the more unmistakable you're going to be. And, and on top of that, I think the more successful you'll be. Awesome. Clearly, you've read my book. <laughs> 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 well, Ryan,
2: uh, this has been phenomenal. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and, and your insights. And uh, I can't recommend this new book highly enough to everybody who's listening.
1: Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy for you. Um, I, I knew you should write a book and I'm, I'm really glad that you did. And I'm, I'm, more, I'm more excited for the one that comes after it because I know you're going to be even better than Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode
2: of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.